Did you grow up in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s? Then you might want to tune into Gen X Grown Up, the podcast by Gen Xers who refuse to outgrow the things they grew up loving. Join the Gen X Grown Ups each week to talk media, tech, toys, and games from yesterday and today through the eyes of Generation Xers. You can also enjoy their Backtrack episodes, where they choose a single topic, like The Walkman, and dig in deep to discuss why they remember them so fondly. To find their podcast and YouTube channel, go to genxgrownup.com. Think about a typical day in your activities, whether you're a business leader, a doctor, in law enforcement, or an artist. I bet you much of your activities involve a smartphone, a tablet, or a computer. Constant messaging coming your way. Bings and bongs and dings and dongs. Just as you find a little peace and quiet to begin concentrating on a project, someone or something grabs your attention. No matter what you do, it seems to happen. You could be at your desk, the office, or on the highway driving home. There's some sort of electronic notification or flashing billboard eager for your attention. This is Craig James, your host, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. From ancient philosophy to modern science, we'll explore the questions that will shape civilization for years to come. This season on Big Audacious Idea, we're examining what it means to be human and asking the questions that sometimes we forget to ask, such as, what is reality? Does time really move forward? And do we really die? Questions like these help us examine this thing called life and spark the big audacious ideas of tomorrow. Our guest today is Maggie Jackson. She's an award-winning author and former Boston Globe columnist known for her penetrating coverage on social issues, especially technology's impact on humanity. Her essays and articles have appeared in publications worldwide, including the New York Times, Business Week, and National Public Radio. Maggie is author of the acclaimed book, Distracted, The Erosion of Attention in the Coming Dark Age. Today, we're in an amazing period of human and technological convergence, where our use of technology is affecting and influencing what it is to be human. It is a double-edged sword of progress and pitfalls. We are connected instantaneously, communicating across the world. The progress and the potential is great. The downside and the risks are great as well. We are often frantic, fragmented, and attempting to multitask beyond practicality. This has negative consequences in our brain function and evolution. Have we lost the ability to relate? Truly connect? Think deeply. These are the questions we'll discuss today with Maggie Jackson. We'll begin with looking at the history of human thought, the creative renaissance periods versus dark ages. Then we'll look at the three elements of what comprises our attention. And then we'll ask what this means for the future. So let's get into it with Maggie Jackson and learn more about this thing we call attention. So let's start by talking about how you got into this world for a minute of the idea of attention and how our minds and our human experience converge with and interact with technology. Tell us about how you got into this. Well, as a foreign correspondent and a columnist I, uh, who covered work-life balance issues, et cetera, 
Uh, I had been a longtime observer of big social trends, and as I noticed, technology, this is going way back to the middle 90s, technology infiltrating and affecting our lives more and more, I became curious about what that entailed. Um, I began to look back in history and try to understand what occurred in different technological revolutions and how people were able to you know, cope with and adjust to and use these devices wisely, whether it was the telegraph or the laptop. And you know, then I began to sort of put the pieces together and realize that there was a continuum. These weren't separate eras from which we could learn, but rather a continuum. And really uh, what underlay all of the adjustments or changes to time experience and to habits, to relationships, was really this underlying idea of attention and how our attention was affected by these new ways of living. You know, it's interesting, Maggie, hearing you describe this, this historic set of trends, differences yet similarities, is the term technology itself. You know, we think in modern terms, technology or computers and lights and screens and digital images, not always the case, but similar impact. I think that's fascinating. Tell us a bit more about how you characterize the notion of technology. Sure. Well, even writing is a form of technology. I mean, Socrates was quite upset about the waning of the oral you know, tradition and what writing would do to our memory, et cetera, et cetera. So we can think of a stick as a technological object, something we can you know, dig a garden with or you know, stab our neighbor or cook the you know, stew for the night. Well, all of the above. Yeah, are all of the above. But the you know technological objects or technology are really just ways of using the world around us. We might say, um, and but of course the ripple effects and the questions that arise. You know how that affects our humanity. How and how well we actually effectively shape the world around us. Technology is is really just an extension of the word tool, and yet it can be far, far more powerful, and that's what we're grappling with today. Uh, An extension, if not an aberration, of the word and the concept tool. If we look back to prosperous civilizations, the Greeks come to mind. They enjoyed prosperity and innovation for a time. They advanced shipping and cultivated new foods. They invented many disciplines of society that apply today. They brought us democracy, science, philosophy, written contracts, taxes, writing, and schools. But after this great progress, they eroded into a 500-year dark period. Beautiful architectural structures became ruins and ultimately burial grounds. Colorful murals and paintings became walls of clay. Why did this happen? The period of prosperity and growth had a certain societal characteristic. The Athenians had intimate relationships with their city and its people. Civic life and civic engagement was not optional. It was a way of life. They paid attention to each other. Let's talk with Maggie about what leads to meaningful human development. Does it always evolve from societies like Athens? After we take a look back into history, we'll then discuss what makes up attention by definition and explore its three components. As I was delving uh, in a sort of baffled way with the implications of technology in our lives and how we as human beings were grappling with these revolutions, changes to our life and changes to our experience of time and space, 
you know, I began to look into the idea of what is a dark age because I heard this time, this period as a dark age. So this is going back a few years when the things looked a little rosy. <laughs> so, the, you know, a dark age I discovered is not all dark. It's ne not necessarily a complete blackout on all human thinking and innovation, etc. You know, in the medieval ages, the quintessential dark age that we think of, there were numbers of technological inventions such as the compass or the banking system, etc. In the Greek dark ages in the 10th century, they first developed the olive as a cultivated fruit. And so that was a big step forward for all of us. Maggie, when you say dark age, what are we talking about? Well, yes, the dark age, as I'm saying, is not all darkness, but you know, overall, it's a narrowing, a forgetting. We, for instance, in periods of history have not just lost the great libraries of our time, but lost the idea of having incredible um, stores of information in that regard. I worry today that we are losing not just the time to have a deep conversation with those around us, but the memory of what it's like to do so and why it's important. So dark ages carry with them a forgetting, a decline, a minced, often technological innovation, and a closed-mindedness. That's a really important point. Um, we might have you know, times of persecution, but just times of narrowing of human thought. And we might you know, imagine that the flip side of this, you know, what does it mean to progress? Well, that would, might be a society that values the experimentalism, the expansiveness, the variability. Those are all themes, I think, that are really important to hold in mind. And today, you know, I think that we're not just losing certain aspects of our humanity, but this narrowing takes the form of defining progress in an extremely constricted way as efficiency, speed, novelty, newness. You know, these are values that came out of industrial age inventions and that changed our experience of time and space. Um, I just saw an ad today that was boasting that this particular airline could give us Europe, quote, in a flash. So that just indicates how duration doesn't matter. You know, the instantaneity is what matters. Process doesn't really matter. It's outcome that matters and push button necessarily. So I think that this is all speaking to what technology means today and how our ideas about technology define what we mean by progress. And I hear you saying, Maggie, that you're, you're speaking to an irony here. An irony that with all this great connection, we're losing depth of connection, potentially. We're losing the ability to relate and think and communicate and collaborate in deep, thoughtful, constructive ways. Yes. Very interesting. Hmm. Yes. And before we can even grapple with the topics such as distraction and attention and reflection and consideration, we have to take a step back, which our lives don't allow us to do, to understand our relationships with machines and particularly, you know, Two things, the identification we have with our, say, it's smartphones, but it's a technology in general, the sleeping, you know, the phantom buzzing, the anxiety if separated, the idea that study shows that we, our cognitive skills actually decline if we can't answer our phone. We're so seamlessly wedded to them. And that carries with it the idea that we want to emulate these devices, again, the themes of speed and efficiency become predominant, but those are machine-like 
characteristics, you know, data points, bullet points, you know, relating to one another in 140 characters. This is a sort of identification with the machine, which has extremely important effects or implications for, you know, how we deal with our attention today. I think that one important point when it comes to humans becoming more machine-like and then machines becoming more human so that they actually nearly pass the Turing test and they they can fool us. Uh, you know, bots seem like real people when we're interacting with them. One important point to realize is that alongside smart machines, and they are getting smarter and smarter, humans grow more complacent. That's fascinating. I mean, we we're really good at that. We're really good at picking up on the low hanging fruit and not really doing more work than we have to. And you know, automation bias has been something that's been noticed since the 19th century at least. Humans just basically stop trying to do their jobs as well when they're working with machines. That could be the driver in the driverless car or the teacher even with the new technology, etc. And then yet at the same time, they also grow more confident in their capability. So when we're searching on the web, but we don't find what we need, we actually feel smarter at the end. And so there's sort of a paradoxical. I think one of the biggest challenges for us today is to improve the human with the same vigor that we're improving the machine. And that certainly can be done. It's just as difficult to make the new computer better, swifter, faster, etc., as to make the human who can slow down, stop, think, reflect, and puzzle out and gain perspective. Um, so I think this seamlessness is a double-edged sword and a real point of possibility. But at the moment, we might be perhaps not as aware as we should be about you know where we end and they begin, et cetera, et cetera. So let's delve into that just a little bit further. Tell us about how this affects not only how we think and how we decide and how we analyze with depth, but what about how we relate as humans? What's the impact there? You know, the idea of the integrity of the moment, is there a sort of a, a space or a boundary related to togetherness? What does that constitute? Just having a phone sitting on the table when two people meet actually undercuts the quality of their conversation. And virtual is usually, when two strangers meet, another study shows, they're less engaged and feel less curious and also less positive about that stranger. When they are together meeting a stranger for the first time, they actually feel more uneasy, more awkward, feel that the encounter is more difficult, and yet feel more positive about what occurred. So that that's a really important point, I think, that what is easy is often what we seek today. Hmm. Well, in, it's interesting to hear you call to my attention the idea that if there is easier stuff we can do and we avoid the eye-to-eye, real jugular conversations as humans, and if we become less capable of doing that, well, then back to the question I asked, we're less capable of relating with depth and empathy. Right, precisely. Well, and, and studies do show a great decline in empathy and a rise in narcissism among college students who are, you know, those who have grown up with these different ways of being. 
So yes, we do have reason to be concerned. Again, I don't think that the face-to-face -to -face togetherness will always be the stuff of human connections. I mean, we'll always be looking for ways to you know, shoot information as well as our bodies around the globe. We'll always be uh, looking for ways to connect across distances, and that, that is part of the human story. But I think that it's really important, first of all, to understand the value of the, you know, the pure, the gold standard of togetherness and not, you know, not waste those times. I mean, everything I'm talking about in a lot of ways, uh, it's very important to stress, are often small parts of our day or our, our humanity. They're really the threads that make up the fabric of human life. So what seems big, oh, our relation to technology, oh, we're so distracted, actually is really a matter of the tiny little decisions that we make each day, coupled with a soupçon or morsel here and there of questioning and thinking. I think that's you know, a very hopeful point. So if we look back, there are patterns that emerge, patterns that led to periods of prosperity or otherwise. Many of them had to do with how we thought, interacted, and harnessed our ability to think critically, to pay attention and focus, collectively or individually. What were and are those elements? How do they work? Let's delve into it. Maggie says there are three elements to attention, awareness, focus, and judgment. These elements remind me of another conversation. Later this season, Alan Burdick and I will discuss the concept of time and the idea that there is never enough of it. As we time splice and multitask, we find ourselves not only running out of time, but when we're spending time, we end up jumbled and confused. Ever forget what you were just doing? Forget what you were about to do next? We can all identify. This can happen when we lose our focus. Focus takes concentration and dedication. We are often unaware of how we lose our focus. This affects our ability to make sound judgments and good decisions. So let's talk with Maggie about these three elements of our attention, awareness, focus, and judgment. Well, attention is really a vehicle, a means for how we gain perspective on the world, how we interact with the world. It's almost like a second skin. But scientifically, attention is like an organ system. So you can think of our networks of attention as sort of like our networks of circulation or digestion. There are networks in the brain to think quickly. There are networks in the brain that help us think slowly. That There's even a default mode network, so-called, kind of funny term, that helps us daydream and also be self-aware. So there are attentional networks, and those are absolutely crucial to the different ways in which we pay attention. Hmm. So if we were to dive into and pay attention to those three types, again, focus, awareness, and judgment, help us understand conceptually what each of those are. Sure. It's fairly simple when you begin to think about it. Awareness, you can think of as wakefulness. That's attention to your surroundings. If you're half asleep, your networks of attention are sort of on underdrive or, or you know, you're not really able to pay attention in that kind of 
observational way. Focus is the spotlight of the mind. The idea that you have put a boundary on XYZ, your laptop or your child, and you are focusing on that. You're filtering, you're sifting out what isn't pertinent at the moment. And focus is also called orienting, which gives a sense of the idea that it's something that we swivel around. You know, a baby's first job, really the first attentional network that is developed in a child or an infant is orienting because that's how they pay attention and find their caregiver, hence comfort, hence nutrition, etc. So focus, awareness, and then finally judgment. But let me just say that these networks of attention actually work together. Um, you can be focusing on the lecture at a business conference and yet be half asleep. So that's to indicate that you can be utilizing these two forms of attention in parallel or together or etc. And judgment to wrap things up is what scientists call executive attention. That's kind of the symphony conductor of your attentional capabilities. That's the ability to select what you're going to pay attention to and then apply your focus to. That's the ability to control the overarching goals that you have in terms of the management of your mind. And that's the management of your mind is a very important way to think about attention. I, I, I likened it to a second skin, to how you interact with the world, but it's also very much the skills that you need in order to control a mind that is so often just reacting to the environment or pinging and ponging around inside your head. In other words, these skills of attention are really what guide us toward you know, anything we want to accomplish and it, they allow us to do it well or poorly. Focus involves more than, say, staring at something. For starters, in order to focus on something, you need to be calm. Consider our hyper-connected, fast-paced lifestyle. Does calm come to mind? Hardly. So this is something that takes work. And it's counterintuitive when we're accustomed to being rewarded for being busy and overbooked. In a Fast Company Work Smart piece from 2015, the author, Stephanie Vaza, highlights that the average human has an eight-second attention span, less than that of a goldfish. If you think there's something fishy about that statement, well, listen on. No matter what environment humans are in, survival depends on being able to focus on what's important. Generally, that's something moving. That skill hasn't changed. It's just moved online. She writes, focus is a muscle, and you can build it. Too many people labor under the idea that they're just not focused, and this becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you drop the mistaken belief, you can take a much more realistic approach to building focus. At any time in history, we're on the cusp of the future. Each generation imagines a future like never before. But at this moment in time, it's true, really true. The number of things happening all at the same time in all domains of society is unprecedented. In the past, there were revolutions in science, industry, or social systems. You know, perhaps one at a time. But now, everything is changing. We're at an inflection point. How we balance or harness all these parallel changes will define our future as bright 
or dark. How we interact with one another, pay attention to one another, is essential. I talked with Maggie about these ideas. Well, I think it's interesting. I was speaking at Fordham University, which is this great university in New York City, to a class, a communications class. So, you know, young 20-somethings or 18 or 19-year-olds. These kids were all extraordinarily worried about their younger cousins and younger siblings and the little kids who were coming after them because they felt as though they were the last generation. The kids in college felt as though they were the last generation to actually understand what it was like to have a conversation without, you know, checking their smartphones 140 times. I thought that was really interesting. And they were, you know, extremely worried about what was coming up. I mean, the answer to your question is we don't know. We're performing a great, with a capital G, capital E, great experiment on the kids of tomorrow, or the kids who are growing up today, and we don't really know what it means to be digital natives. But we can kind of sense from the studies that are now beginning to build up what kind of, not just short-term effects, the distraction and the technological time-splicing have on us as adults and also as children, but also what long-term costs are arising. Now that, that's been really interesting to me because say take multitasking, which is a kind of a, a form of multitasking that we're doing all day long. And of course, now we know it slows us down. Kids can do their homework effectively, but they do it in twice the time when they're multitasking through it. Um, it leads to error. One professor at Stanford called multitaskers uh, suckers for irrelevancy. So, you, I mean, you can see it. You know, think if you're looking out a train window and barreling down the train tracks and you're, and you're trying to discern, you know, houses and trees, you're just going to be able to do it less precisely in a less nuanced way. Uh, it, you know, that suburban development kind of looks all alike. Well, similarly, in our information society, you really can't see the differences and the distinctions and therefore prioritize. That by multitasking, you're just putting out fires, and that's all you're capable of. And that's exactly what we don't need in, in this world where we have such deep, difficult, messy problems to solve. Mm -hmm. There was something in your book that goes back in history, back in the 1600s, I think. I believe this individual from like six in the morning to 11 at night, seven days straight, observed a single aphid to understand what's really going on. Maybe that's an extreme example, but it points to the fact that that's almost an impossible notion in our society to concentrate on anything more than, oh, three minutes. Right, exactly. We're talking about a spectrum of human capability. On one hand, we don't want to be staring at one thing all day. That's, uh, you know, inhuman and really isn't going to under, you're not going to understand much about that except the pinprick of what you're looking at. On the other hand, what we're doing is, you know, splicing and undercutting our attentional capabilities. So what really we need to strive for and what we're built for as human beings is a kind of variability or ability to interact or react or to deal with what comes along in flexible, nuanced versatile ways. That's that's what we need. That's what we want, versatility. But we're not going to be getting it by thinking that everything can be known at a glance, that brevity is the supreme value in our system. And there's been an interesting series of studies, longitudinal studies, the best gold standard of creativity in our country, and if not the world, the Torrance studies of creativity. 
And they show that since the 1980s, but particularly since we began using these technologies in the late 90s, early 2000s, Americans from kindergarten to adults are less imaginative, less humorous, less able to synthesize. The list goes on and on. But the single biggest drop in creative ability is something called elaboration. Elaboration is simply the ability to put flesh on an idea, to basically work something out, not just have an idea and then race off to the next one. There's been a 40% drop in this capability since the late 90s, and that's stunning. So as we look forward, and two things come to mind, what does the future hold? And it's coupled with, so what to do? What can we do as individuals or collectively to smartly harness these technologies? If I would offer one point to audiences today, it's one word, it's uncertainty. Now, that makes people recoil. You know, we live seemingly in a world of constant uncertainty. You know, if nothing else, we can kind of argue it's a dark age where the problems are getting messier by the day. But really, unless we understand and are comfortable with uncertainty, we're never actually going to be doing the depth of thinking and questioning and attending that's needed to solve the messiest problems. You know, under time pressure, stress, flux, we revert to something called the quick mind. The quick mind is the gut thinking that is fast and plausible. The first answer that comes up, in other words, is really the neat package, almost machine-like answer that we've been talking about. It's really a kind of a surface response, first answer. But we're really evolved to do something more, and that's stopping, thinking, and reflecting. And then you're pulling in the capacities of the reflective or slower mind. The gateway to reflection is uncertainty. You know, stopping and sitting for a moment with that kind of mismatch or, you know, the, the, the something that's unexpected, the problem is more murky than you thought, that employee really isn't doing their job, you're facing up to the music of the difficulty or the murkiness of the problem. And that's, that's when the greatest human thinking occurs. All daydreaming in the most creative sense all speculation, you know, even just putting something aside for the moment. These are all moments that have a great deal to do with uncertainty, perspective taking, thinking about what does that person feel like, which is incredibly important for all social relations and is being squeezed out by the tools that downplay empathy or don't allow for empathy. So all of these types of being as a human involve as a starting point uncertainty. So if we can get comfortable with the I don't know moment, we're going to be so far ahead in terms of really tackling this distractible world and the problems that are deepening by the day. And I think that at the moment, we're really facing a kind of a crossroads. I think that many would argue, and many are telling me, they believe this is a dark age of brevity, of surface thinking, of instantaneity and disconnected relationships. But at the same time, I truly believe that a sort of renaissance is at hand, that we can take the tools that we've invented so creatively 
and utilize them along with and in addition to you know improving our own minds and our and our skills you know an attentional renaissance of versatility depth of understanding and you know one response i get very often is well this is it this is what we have the technologies are there we just have to learn to live with it the amazons the googles that's it they're the power brokers etc but i entirely disagree yes we have to work with and live with these tools but at the same time we really can't predict the future and we really can't underestimate our ability to control our own futures through these tiny decisions and the greater questions of our day and one point that interests me is along with our adoration of the machine and the way we live today is a growing uneasiness a beneficial a hopeful uneasiness i would say 70% of americans say the internet has improved their lives well an equal number also say the internet has made us lazy and distracted but that uneasiness is the uncertainty that i mentioned a minute ago as the gateway to reflection that uneasiness i see in our society is a yearning to take perspective to step back finally and actually look more closely at how we're living and to begin to use our minds and our attentional capabilities more fully so i'm hopeful So as we progress through our days, it's easy to be unaware of the distractions we encounter, and more importantly, the impact these distractions have on our ability to think critically, arrive at sound judgments, and create solutions. Maggie challenges us to stop and truly think, to reflect and ponder, to remain focused on one task at a time as possible. If we do so, we will set ourselves apart from those who end up scattered, fragmented, and frustrated. We can shift our habit, tune our attention, and shape our future, if we choose to. It's up to us, each and every one of us. Today, we discussed with Maggie Jackson how focus and attention are fueled to the thinking required for arriving at big, constructive ideas, as well as how to deal with the increasing complexity of our world. Next week, we'll ask Dr. Tony McCaffrey about the very idea of ideas. As a leading voice in the field of innovation and a doctor of cognitive psychology, Tony will explore the neuroscience behind thinking, brainstorming, and ideas. We'll follow the discussion of ideas into interesting corners of the mind, such as what makes for a good idea? Why do we get stuck on certain problems? And is brainstorming helpful or harmful? This and much more on next week's episode of Big Audacious Idea. Don't miss it. This is your host and co-executive producer, Craig James, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. A special thank you to my fellow executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, Bridget Coyne. Editor, Julie Fink. Audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Andrew Balserzak. Music director, David Allen Moss. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media. Find us on your favorite podcast app or go to evergreenpodcasts.com. Big Audacious Idea. See the big picture. Bonjour. 
This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.